make sure the music is killed and everything and let's open with prayer but in this series I've it's really been kind of deep hadn't it God's really been speaking to me speaking to us about the depth of understanding the blood covenant what Jesus paid for us on the cross and applying that to our lives by faith so Lord as we're getting into this word tonight I thank you even now for your precious Holy Spirit just moving upon every one of us that are going to be hearing this I mean what a presence of God here tonight I thank you, Father, by the Spirit, just move upon every one of us. Everybody's going to be hearing this, watching this. Those that are live streaming or those that are going to catch this through something like a podcast. But I thank you, Lord, for moving upon us by your Spirit to give us good soil of hearts and minds and lives and eyes and ears that can see and hear. Uh, Jesus said many times, you know, things like they have eyes but they don't see. Lord, help us by the Holy Spirit to have eyes that do see and ears that do hear. And, Lord, that our hearts are good soil for this. As you speak through me tonight, everything that needs to be said, living seeds of truth sown into good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. Lord, I thank you for breathing upon this, that the wind of your spirit will carry this out among the nations. It'll get where it's supposed to accomplish what it's supposed to. Your word will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. And we know the birds of the air try to steal the seed, And so, Lord, we take authority over the enemy. We bind anything of the devil that would try to hinder this word from getting where it's supposed to get, accomplishing what it's supposed to. We commit to be bound right now and back off in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for your angels just clearing away any spiritual warfare and that we stand on that promise I've already quoted. This word will not return void, but it will go forward and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. So we thank you for it now. We thank you for hearing it in the prayers over these sermons and the discipleship here in River of Life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we talked about the spirit of Gog, G-O-G, and I can't get back into that very much, but just suffice to say that um, that ancient spirit, a fallen angel that seems to be residing north of Israel in what we know as Russia today in the old Soviet Union area, that is a very antichrist spirit, okay? In the same way, all these various fallen angels that, that have, you know, Satan has in different territories, like over Iran, it's the Prince of Persia. And I'm not going to get into all of it, but all of these ancient fallen angels, the Bible calls them principalities and powers, these spirits are very anti-Christ. And they produce in those territories a very anti-Christ system, and they try to use governments to do it. They'll create... Uh, you know, the leaders there, they'll mess with their minds. They'll begin to impress upon them all these different ideas to pa- start passing legislation, etc. Ultimately, to try to snuff out any trace of God, any trace of Jesus Christ, his word, and to set up a very antichrist system. And even that spirit of Gog, which we talked about last week, is uh, moving. And it's there's a fulfillment in Ezekiel 38, 39, of the Gog-Magog war that's coming, but you can see that that spirit has been impressing upon Putin to do certain things. And the world watches and wonders, why is he doing this? I mean, what is the point? And I guess he's just bent on power and conquest, etc. But those of us that know the Bible know that there's more to it than just that. Something is pushing him to do these things. And ultimately, uh, like I said last week, the Eastern Europe bloc is the ancient land of Gomer, G-O-M-E-R, that the Bible says will join in the Gog-Magog War. And so he's beginning to push his forces into that area. And also, interestingly enough, Togarma, which is Turkey, Turkey is still one of our NATO alliance nations, yet in recent years, Turkey has become extremely Muslim and anti-Israel. Isn't that interesting? Also, Iran the, the probably the, the most significant terrorist nation right now today is ancient Persia. And isn't it interesting that Russia and Persia have been becoming buddies and they're helping each other. And I could go on, in, in northern Africa is an area that used to not be this way, but in the last several decades it has become predominantly Muslim. My point is this, those are the specific nations 
The Bible said would form a coalition to descend on the nation of Israel in the days to come in the, what's called the Gog-Magog War. Israel would not really be adequately prepared, but the Bible, read it for yourself. The Bible says God himself will fight for Israel, and he will even send like hell stones, like meteorites or whatever, from the sky to annihilate the armies that come against Israel. God himself will literally fight for Israel to supernaturally protect that nation. Why? What you got to understand the bigger conflict in all of this is not about that teeny tiny little nation of Israel per se as much as it is that the Bible says when Jesus Christ comes to the earth, he's coming to that teeny tiny little portion of land. And Satan is doing everything in his power to stop the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. That's what this global conflict is about. People look at this and think, why is there such an uproar about Israel? This itty-bitty little nation that's like the size of Finland or, or like our New Jersey, New York area or something, this little bitty landmass. Why are all these UN resolutions continually against Israel? Why is it, of all the nations of the world, why is it that they're the nation that's surrounded with terrorists? They're constantly trying to annihilate them. What is the problem here? It's spiritual. And it's not really about Israel so much as it is Satan is trying to stop Christ coming. And he thinks if he can wipe out that nation, if nothing else, at least he can delay the coming of Christ. You see what I'm saying? Who knows what the devil thinks? Maybe in his mind, he thinks if he can get this world evil enough, if he can kill all the Christians and wipe out the Jews and, and wipe out Israel, maybe in his mind, he's thinking God will just walk away from all of it or something. Who knows? But his goal is to stop the coming of Christ. And so these ancient fallen angels that we know by name, the Prince of Persia, Gog, etc., these type of spirits are very anti-Christ. And so the spirit of anti-Christ manifests itself also as a spirit of anti-Semitism. It's the same spirit, don't forget that. Because for Jesus to come, there has to be a nation of Israel and there has to be a remnant of Jewish people. The Bible says so. You understand that? That Bible prophecy must be fulfilled. And the devil knows that. That's why he's trying to raise up this anti-Semitism in the earth to try to stop the coming of Christ. All right, so now with that in mind, I'm going to talk a little bit about Jacob and Esau. This is a really interesting study. Now, Esau, let me just give you a little bit of background. This isn't really all that long, but I want to make sure that it makes sense. So I don't want to um, try to rush through this. So we know the story that from Abraham, God called Abraham, cut covenant with Abraham. Abraham walked through the bloody soil. Remember, those animals were cut in pieces. And God made an oath and a covenant with Abraham to him and his descendants. And so in that promise, God gave Abraham a supernatural son, Isaac. Now, we know the story that Sarah should not have been able to have a child, but this was a supernatural thing. And so she's almost 100 years old, and she had a, a child. And so then after Isaac, we know the story, Isaac married Rebekah. And later on in life, Rebekah got pregnant, and she was pregnant with twins, and she knew that there was some kind of a tug-of-war, some, something going on in her womb. In fact, she felt it so much so, the Bible says that she asked the Lord, whatever am I dealing with here? What's going on? And the Lord spoke to her and said that there are two nations within you. And they're, they're at war with one another, so to speak. But the Lord said the, the older will serve the younger. And so she knew that whenever they were born that God's hand was on Jacob. But Isaac didn't know that. Isaac didn't hear from God like she did. And I'll get to that in a little bit. And so there was always this conflict between Jacob and Esau. Now, don't you think about some things here. So Esau technically was the firstborn. And in that culture, that was huge. The firstborn got the inheritance, got the birthright. Everything went to the firstborn. And then whatever was left over would be divvied up between those that came after the firstborn. So Esau was in line to inherit all of the wealth that Abraham passed to Isaac and Isaac was going to pass to him. 
he was Esau was going to get the birth he had the birthright but he was going to receive the blessing y'all hearing me tonight he was going to receive the blessing now listen to what I'm saying here people a lot of times don't understand this but there was something that God placed on Abraham in the spiritual realm it was kind of like a coat of many colors if you will there was something spiritually that came on Abraham like a garment and it was God's blessing and it caused every area of his life to be blessed he wore this thing everywhere he went the blessing of God would cause things to work out for him okay and so from Abraham that blessing went to Isaac it did not go to Ishmael it went to Isaac. Is everybody following me? So it bypassed Ishmael, and this blessing was invested on Isaac. It settled on him like a garment. And so same thing with Isaac. The Bible said about Isaac that he became so wealthy as just an individual person that the Philistines envied him. I mean, there was a blessing on him. Even when he was in trouble and there was a famine, I mean, it didn't rain at all. And he was in desperate trouble. The Lord's told him, said, do not leave the area. I will bless you. I'll be with you. And so Isaac, by faith, gets his men out there and plows the fields. There's no rain. This is dry, crusty dirt. Plows the fields, plants the crops. And in the same year, without it raining at all, he reaped a hundredfold. That's the blessing of God. God made a supernatural way for Isaac to have provision for him and his family. And so then, when, I, when it came time now for this generational blessing, something that's like a garment in the spirit realm, it became time for Isaac to pass this now to the next generation. He was going to choose Esau. This is, this is of great concern to me when I read this because I'm thinking, what was Isaac really thinking to himself didn't he realize how wicked Esau really was? Esau had no heart for God whatsoever. Yet, Isaac was so blinded, even in the natural he was blinded, but he was so blinded that he would have passed this blessing to Esau, but yet God had chosen Jacob. And Rebecca knew that because Rebecca had heard from God. How many know sometimes you hear something from God, but nobody else really has heard that, and they don't know, but you know. All right, so let me give you some things about Esau. This is just kind of some interesting facts I'm going to share. So Esau, when he was born, he was covered with red hair, and so Esau, his, his nickname was Edom, and it means red, but the name Esau uh, in the Hebrew is um, Ad, Admoni, and it's connected with that word Edom. So it's interesting because when you see this, you can't help but think of Adam. Now, Adam, remember, he fell, and Adam is kind of a picture and type of the sinful man that's just worldly and carnal that came from the dirt and is going to return back to the dirt. It's a worldly, carnal, sinful man in a fallen condition. And that's basically Esau right there. And so the word Adam seems to imply like from the dirt, like the red clay. And that's where Adam originated from was from the dirt. And that's, you can't help but think of that when you see the name Esau and you see Edom and how close it is in the Hebrew to Adam. But Esau did not care about the God of Abraham at all. He married Canaanite women and built stone houses. Now, this was huge because up until that point, God told Abraham, he said, I want you to go to a place I'm going to show you, and I will give you this area. And Abraham and his family lived in tents. Now, y'all follow me because what I'm saying is extremely important. Abraham understood he was just a pilgrim passing through. He was not a Canaanite. He was a foreigner, and he knew that he was supposed to be a foreigner. He was never to intermarry and become a Canaanite. He was, he was separate from them. He lived among them, but he himself was God's. And so he, all the Canaanites built stone houses, and they, they were a people of the world. They were locked into the world system. They, they belonged to the world, but Abraham 
was, was like a pilgrim that was just traveling through the world. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he was looking for a city whose maker and builder was God. So Abraham understood that he was a pilgrim people. He was not a Canaanite. And Isaac understood that. But when it got to, to Esau, Esau did not care anything about the God of Abraham. He built stone houses and basically became a Canaanite. And he married Canaanite women. And it grieved his parents deeply. And when he saw how much that grieved his parents, he tried to kind of fix it, if you will. And he goes, to, of all places, he goes to Ishmael, that family, and he marries a, a female from the Ishmaelites, trying to kind of fix it, if you will. It says in some Jewish writings, it's not in the Bible, this is just something to you know, take with a grain of salt. But it said in some Jewish writings that I read that Esau's wives would burn incense to their Canaanite gods right there in the camp. And that this is what the Jewish writings said. I'm not saying this is true. But they said that that incense is actually what made Isaac's eyes burn and ended up losing some of his vision. Again, I'm not saying that's true. But I don't doubt that they burned incense and worshiped their gods right there in the camp, Isaac's family, okay? So see, Esau brought in among God's people heathen women. He built the stone houses. Everything about Esau reflects a very arrogant, self-centered person that cared nothing about God. He didn't care about the heritage. How many have... Uh, Christian parents or grandparents or whatever, and you really value that, you know? Well, think about this for a moment. Esau had Abraham as his granddad. One of the greatest men of God that's ever lived was his granddad, and he couldn't care less about that. Have you ever thought about that? He, he didn't care at all. He was willing to give up his birthright just for a bowl of red bean stew, lentils, just for a bowl of beans, he was willing to give up his birthright. You know that that angered God, that somebody would take something so lightly that is so, such a weighty matter, and he didn't care anything about it. Esau had everything given to him, like on a silver platter, but he didn't care about his birthright whatever, whatsoever. So therefore, God replaced him with Jacob. The Hebrew word for Esau is kind of a word play. I don't have time to get into it um, for the word Seir, which Esau's descendants became known as the nation of Edom, E-D-O-M. Edom means red, and they lived in the mountains of Seir. Now, Esau became so angry at Jacob because Rebekah knew that God's hand was on Jacob. Remember, she heard from God. There's two nations within you. They're at war, and the older will serve the younger. So she knew God's hand was on Jacob, and then she watched it. She watched how Esau grew up and cared nothing for God built the stone houses, married the Canaanites, basically became a Canaanite. And then she watched Jacob, and she watched how Jacob loved God, loved God's people, and she knew God's hand is on Jacob. And when it came time now for Isaac to pass the blessing, he was going to mess everything up. If it wasn't for Rebekah, Isaac, we'd be reading about Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, the heathen, Canaanite. That's what we'd be reading about today. Instead of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the 12 tribes, we'd be reading something quite different. Isaac was about to mess everything up. But Rebecca knew he's totally missing God here. So she talks to Jacob and says, I want you, because he's about to pass this blessing, I want you to go in and deceive him and become to receive this blessing because you're the rightful heir. God said that the older will serve the younger. God is supposed to, he's supposed to pass his blessing to you, Jacob. Now, Jacob was hesitant about this, but he did what his mother said because I'm sure from the time he was quite young, she kept telling him, Jacob, I see God's hand on you. You're the one. 
God told me that this is supposed to be from Abraham Isaac to you, and you're supposed to receive this. So when Jacob was born, Jacob's name, Yaakov in Hebrew, means God, may God protect, but it's an interesting Hebrew play on words because the word akev means heal, and the word akov means like to be deceitful. So in Hebrew, to imply that somebody is a heel grabber or somebody that would trip somebody up, like a deceiver, um, that's kind of what his name implied. And so he had to live with that, that he had a name that people would tease him about because it implied something like a person that would trip up another person or trip or trick another and would maybe... Um, you know, for example, you wouldn't want to buy a used car from Jacob. You understand what I'm saying? You know, that would be his reputation. And so Jacob had to live with that and um, throughout his life. And so now when his mother's saying to him, I want you to deceive your father and I want you to go in and get this blessing, Jacob's probably thinking, man, my whole life I've had to live down being this supposed deceiver and here I am actually going to deceive my father. Now, Romans 9, 11 through 13 make it clear that God's election, that God had chosen Jacob from birth. How many believe that God can choose people from birth? You remember John the Baptist? There are certain people that God has put his hand on from birth. Amen. Now, Genesis 25, 29 through 31, Edom, like I said, means red. And isn't it interesting that Esau whose name became synonymous with Edom, the Edomites, and it means red. Isn't it interesting that he sold out his birthright for a bowl of red beans, red porridge? Now, Isaac loved Esau because Esau was the one that would go out hunting and would bring back the really good venison into the household. How many like venison? I do too. But how many knows that venison isn't worth missing God and giving the, the blessing to the wrong person? Okay, so Isaac loved Esau because of carnal things. But God loved Jacob because of spiritual things. Now, let me just give you a couple examples here. God's election. Isn't it interesting that God chose Seth over Cain? even though Cain was born before Seth. Now, we know Cain killed Abel. But also, in Noah's children, God chose his blessing to settle upon Shem instead of Japheth. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. God chose Jacob over Esau. And God chose Judah and Joseph over Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn, but Reuben made some serious mistakes, not the least of which was sleeping with Bilhah. But it cost him. It cost him that status. And God ended up choosing Judah and Joseph over Reuben. God chose Moses over Aaron. Aaron was his older brother. And God chose David over his brothers, even though David was the youngest. Isn't it interesting? Think about what I'm saying here. God's chosen ones. See, man many times will choose the wrong person. You know, when God got angry with Israel because they said we want a king, God basically, if I could paraphrase this, Samuel was brokenhearted about it. Samuel was very angry. But God told Samuel, he said, now listen, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. I'm supposed to be their king. I'm the one they're supposed to be consulting with here, but they want an earthly king like other nations. Samuel was really upset about it. And God said, you know what? I'm paraphrasing this. I'll give them a king. I'll give them exactly what they want. And he gave them a Saul. But see, man will always choose a Saul. God will choose a David. You understand? And so many times people will choose the wrong person, just like Isaac. You know, it says about Isaac that he was overweight and his eyes were dim I can't help but think about this Isaac doesn't strike me as somebody that lived a life of prayer and fasting and really seeking God he probably just rode his daddy's coattails spiritually 
And therefore, he didn't have a lot of spiritual discernment. Y'all hear what I'm saying? And when it came down to time to make a very important decision, Isaac did not correctly discern. How many knows we cannot ride other people's coattails? We better learn how to pray and fast and hear from God for ourselves so we can make some serious mistakes in life. You know, Jesus, when it came time for him to pick the 12, he had all these multitudes that were following him. If Jesus didn't hear from the Father, he could have chose 12 completely wrong people. So what does Jesus do? He spends the night, all night, in prayer and fasting. And the next day, Jesus called the 12 unto him that they might be with him. He wanted to make sure he heard from God correctly. And so Esau, now I'm going to give you a couple more things here. Esau developed a deep-seated hatred toward Jacob because Jacob got his birthright, number one, which Esau gave up without a fight, okay? But then Jacob stole his blessing. But God always intended for Jacob to have that blessing, but yet Jacob did steal the blessing. And so Esau so hated Jacob for that that he had determined in his heart that once Isaac had passed away and they had mourned him and all that, Esau had determined that he was going to kill Jacob. And Jacob knew it. And so Isaac allowed Jacob to flee to um, Paden Aram, which was where... Um, their, their family was. It was Rebekah's uh, brother Laban, and that would be Jacob's uncle. And so he allowed him to kind of flee there to, um, to be with his uncle and his cousins and told him, now listen to what Isaac told Jacob. If I could paraphrase this, let me just share it from my heart. I imagine Isaac said something like this. I have blessed you, and even though that wasn't my initial intent, I can see that God's hand was in this and God had determined that this would happen this way. And now your brother Esau, who God passed by because of his sin, he has chosen over there to marry Canaanite women, to build stone houses and to be a Canaanite. But now the blessing that I got from my father Abraham, and I've passed to you. He's saying, Jacob, I don't want you to become a Canaanite. I don't want you to marry Canaanite women. I don't want you to build stone houses. I want you to go among my people and go, go out to your uncle Laban, and I want you to find a wife there. And so Jacob honored Isaac. He didn't do like Esau did. Jacob went to Padanaram and he married Leah and then married Rachel. And it was from that that the 12 tribes of Israel came. You understand? And so Jacob, the blessing of God was so on Jacob that Jacob, even though he went there among Laban, Laban changed his wages like 10 times. Laban kept taking advantage of him. But Laban didn't want him to leave because he knew that everything Jacob did was prosperous. And, he, and Laban became quite wealthy and powerful because of the blessing that was on Jacob. And so Laban didn't want him to ever go. And Jacob had to tear away and come back. Now Esau, and I'm going to start closing this out, but I'm, I'm going somewhere with this because there's a Hebrew phrase Olam Eba, which means the everlasting hatred, the eternal hatred. And Esau so hated Jacob that when Jacob left Laban and came back, he had his two wives, he had all these children and grandchildren, all this. As, as Jacob came back wealthy and powerful and all that, Esau was going to kill Jacob. And Jacob was afraid. And so Jacob told his wives, he said, I want Rachel, you and your kids, I want you to go way over there and I'm going to split my family in half and I'm going to send you way over there. And then Lee, I want you and your kids and all of you guys to go way over there. And when Esau comes and he kills me, uh, perhaps he will only kill some of you and the rest of you will live. He knew that Esau was going to try to kill him. 
Now, I was reading this, the book. It's, it's, this isn't in the Bible, but I do believe it's probably true. This was the account in the book of Jasher. And it gives this same story, but it tells part of this story that didn't make it in the Bible. But in my opinion, I think it's true. Esau had determined to kill Jacob. And so in the book of Jasher, it says that he took like 400 men. He had, he had like four, I believe three or four of his generals with him. And he's coming toward Jacob, and Jacob was afraid. And so this is in the Bible, this part of it. Jacob began to really pray all night. Remember this story? And he was scared, and the angel of the Lord appeared to Jacob. And Jacob begins to wrestle the angel. Y'all remember this story? And Jacob said, and I remember his name Yaakov, means like deceiver. Jacob begins to wrestle this angel, and he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And the reason why Jacob was earnestly praying that night and he's wrestling this angel was because he knew Esau's coming. And here I've got my family and Esau's coming with warriors and he's going to kill me. And so he's asking God to spare him and to spare his family. He's wrestling this angel. And eventually he prevailed, which I'm sure you know and I know the angel let him prevail. <laughs> Amen. Anyway, so he finally prevails and the angel touches his hip and it goes out of socket. Now, how many knows that um, when God really, when you really wrestle in prayer and you begin to deal with the things in your life that need to be dealt with and you really let God do in you what needs to be done, it's going to show up in your walk. Amen. When Jacob came out of that prayer time, he walked different. And when people saw Jacob from that day forward, they would see him walk different and they could see him a ways off and say, that's, that's Jacob. But here's, here's the thing though. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Now Israel means, this is so important, Israel means an overcomer. He that overcomes. In fact, the name Israel, if you look at it, it's kind of, again, like a play on Hebrew words here. In the middle of it, you got the I, but you got, look at this, S-A-R. You know what that is in Hebrew? It means prince. And then the last part of Israel, the E-L, means God. It implies like a prince of God, like somebody that reigns. It implies somebody that fought uh, their own personal battles, and they became an overcomer. How many knows in Revelation, the one thing Jesus kept saying to the church, he would say, I have these things against you, but he that overcomes, I will give you this, that, and the other, and gave him promises. God has called us to be overcomers. He's wanting us like Jacob, that God can look at our lives and say, look, I have a problem with this, that, and the other in your life. Let me deal with this, wrestle it in prayer that you begin to really press in until I change you, until I change the way you walk, and I give you a new name, and that you become an overcomer of whatever it is you need to overcome. And that night, Jacob prevailed, and he became Israel, somebody that overcame, that's an overcomer. And so Jacob comes out of that. Now, the book of Jasher tells this really cool story that didn't make the Bible, but in this story... When Jacob earnestly prayed, God heard him, and God sent an angel of the Lord to begin to deal with Esau. And what this angel appeared, I believe personally this is true, but this is a neat story. When this angel appeared to Esau and his men, this angel would show up, and it would look like a general that had all this multitude with him on horses, and, his, and when this angel showed up as like a military force, Esau's men were so afraid they actually fell off their horses. And Esau was kind of stumbling over his words and was scared and said, who are you, my Lord? And the angel who appeared like a general in war would say to Esau, I'm with your brother Jacob. And this happened like three or four times. By the time Esau and his men showed up to Jacob, they were scared half to death because of this angel kept appearing to them like, a, like an army. And so, the, but in the Bible, it does record when Esau finally showed up to Jacob that God had done a work in Esau and Esau ran up to Jacob and hugged him and kissed him and, and they parted ways in peace. 
How many knows that God knows how to turn those type of situations where he can make a volatile situation become a situation of peace? But here's the problem. When Esau left there, God had answered Jacob's prayer and God had calmed Esau down and Esau was willing to, to live and cohabitate with him in peace. In fact, Esau said to Jacob and his family, why don't you come back with me to Edom, to Mount Seir, and we can, we can live together. And Jacob knew that was a bad idea. And Jacob said, well, you go on ahead and we'll, we'll come later, you know. And so Jacob takes his family and they go to a place called Sukkot. How many knows that that name sounds real familiar, doesn't it? Sukkot is the Hebrew for tabernacles, where the glory of God tabernacles. So here's the part of the story I wanted to get to. The eternal hatred. Even though Esau was calmed down, Esau never got over his hatred of Jacob. And he passed that hatred on to his descendants. Also, I'll say again, just some Jewish writings I've read. Esau had a grandson named Amalek, which will sound very familiar to those of you that know the Bible. And in Jewish writings, they say that Esau set Amalek down as his grandson had told him, I tried to exterminate Jacob, the one who stole my blessing and stole my birthright, but I never could kill him. And so I passed the task on to you, Amalek, that you and your family will hunt down and kill the, the Jacob and his family, his descendants. This eternal hatred. Isn't it interesting that people that are truly right with God, that they're always going to have others that just hate them? And seemingly, a lot of times, for no good reason. What does it say in John chapter 15? Remember, Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. Look, look this up for yourself. In John chapter 15, Jesus told them that the world has hated me, therefore it'll hate you also. It says, if you were of the world and of the people of, world, of the world, they would love you as their own. But yet, because I've called you out from among them and you belong to me and you don't belong of the world, he said, the world will hate you. He said, a servant's not greater than his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you. And he said, you know why they, they will hate you? Because you teach what I'm saying. You're teaching it. And it declares unto them that their ways are evil. And they will hate you for that. That's what Jesus taught. And so I find it interesting in the scriptures that you can see that even Adam and Eve, I mean, when they had kids, there was the first two brothers on the earth and one of them killed the other. But what was it about? Think about it. Cain and Abel. It was religion. Cain hated Abel over religion. Abel, look, both of them, Cain and Abel, both had a relationship with God. It said they both talked to God and God talked to both of them. They had a relationship. But Cain wanted God on his terms. See, God told them, this is the offerings I'll receive. It'll be from animals. When you shed the blood of animals and you bring that offering, I will receive that. Because it was a picture and type of Jesus Christ to come, okay? And he said to them, this is the offering I'll receive. And Cain says, you know what? I keep the fields and I grow crops. And so I'm not, this is, I'm paraphrasing here, but Cain says, basically, I don't care, God, that that's what you say. I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to bring crops, I'm going to bring corn and wheat or whatever. I'm going to bring these crops in here, and I expect you that you're going to accept this from me. And God looks down at Cain and says, I told you what was pleasing to me. I don't receive this offering because it's not what I asked for. And then Cain looks over at Abel, and Abel just simply did what God said. He brought the offerings that God wanted. And so God looked with favor on Abel's offering. And listen, Cain hated Abel because of that. Isn't it interesting that people that are just simply going to humble themselves 
and love God and live for God and do it the way God said do it will be hated, I mean hated, by those that refuse to do it God's way. How many people out there are religious today? They know about God. They know who Jesus is. They know a little bit about the Bible. They go to church periodically, but they're living in unrepentant sin, and they know it. They're not right with God. And I'm going to tell you, don't forget this. The greatest enemies to those that will be God's true remnant people in these last days will be the fake Christians. It's going to be those that, that know about the Lord, but they don't really know him. They're religious, but they're not righteous. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of God unto salvation. They know about the Lord. And these are people that are going to be liberal. I mean, they're, they're going to be comfortable with things like, let's just say abortion or homosexuality or whatever, or maybe they're comfortable with people living together in, in sin. But they're comfortable with things that God's against. They're fake Christians. And yet they are going to be the ones that despise and hate, I mean hate, true Christians with a passion. And you see the same thing with Jacob and Esau. Esau was the one that God gave him everything. I mean, he was Abraham's grandson, the blessing, everything that Abraham had was available to Esau, but Esau didn't care about it. He goes off and builds the stone houses. He marries the Canaanite women. He threw them. He produces little Canaanite children. He wants to just be a man of the world. He was carnal. He was worldly. He was selfish. And because of that, God didn't bless him. God wanted to bless Esau, but Esau lived a life that God could not bless. And so whenever the blessing went to Jacob, he hated Jacob so much that he wanted to kill him. Just like Cain and Abel. And so we know the story that Esau, if this is true, passed that on to Amalek. And the Amalekites became a nation. And the Amalekites were a great enemy to Israel. As a matter of fact, when Israel left Egypt and was going through the wilderness, Amalek came in behind them and would pick off the weak, poor, and defenseless and went in there and tried to slaughter Israel, and they hated Israel. And God finally had enough of them that in the days of King Saul, he told Saul, he said, I want you without any mercy whatsoever to go through the nation of Amalek and I want you to wipe out every Amalekite. No, don't leave one person alive. Don't leave any animals alive. And you know what Saul did being the rebellious person he was? He did not do it. And so the interesting part of that story is, is that later on, generations later, when Israel was in Persia and still in captivity, the story of Purim, the story of Esther, that Haman, if you read the story, Haman was an Amalekite. Isn't that interesting? Do you, do you see the eternal hatred here? There's something in these ancient fallen angels over territories that are anti-Christ and they hate God's people, but there's also... There's, these, there's some kind of a spiritual aspect in the world today that has worked its way into certain people that they're religious, but yet they hate God's true people. You understand there's this eternal hatred there. And it manifests itself with some kind of anti-Semitic thing that wants to go against and, I mean, just hate the Jewish people and hate true Christians. And listen, whenever um, in the days of Esther, Haman rises up, he's an Amalekite. Saul, if Saul had done what he was supposed to do, that guy wouldn't even be alive. So now Haman begins to try to follow in his great ancestor Esau's footsteps to hate Jacob, hate his descendants, and exterminate the people of God. And also, read this for yourself. Esther was a descendant of the son of Kish, which means that she was a descendant of Saul. God, you know what? What Saul refused to do in his generation, God raised up one of his descendants. I mean, years later, generations later, a descendant of Saul ends up having to deal with a descendant of Amalek. 
there's something there. It's like bloodlines, if you will. It's interesting to me that God has always had a righteous remnant in the earth. He's got a people. There's a bunch of people that call themselves Christians out there, especially in America, but they don't really know the Lord yet. God has always got a remnant. But yet there's like spiritual descendants, if you will, of Esau. That there's this olam eba, this ancient hatred that, that just hates the remnant of God and wants to exterminate them. Now, I'll, I'll share one more thing. This is, this is me getting ahead of myself. But later on, Edom, E-D-O-M, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, if you read years later, and you can find this. I'm going to do a whole sermon on this, okay? But the Edomites, I-D-U-M, Edomites seem to be the same people group. Excuse me. And when Israel went into captivity, the Edomites began to move into the nation of Israel. And many people thought that they were Jewish. And here's the interesting thing. Herod, do you remember Herod? the one who was a Jewish convert, the one that built the temple, but yet also the one that slaughtered um, all those in Bethlehem, that guy. And he's also the ones that Herod and the Herod, that, that group, they were Edomites. It's like they were fake Jews, yet they would persecute God's true people. They were the ones that had James beheaded and tried to kill Peter. And in the days of Jesus, when he was born, it was that group of people that slaughtered all those babies trying to kill Jesus. You remember what I'm saying here? There's something here I'm trying to show you. The fake Jews tried to slaughter the true Jews, the remnant. In the same way, the fake Christians out there will hate and try to exterminate the real ones. It's a very interesting principle. Now I want to close with this and then then we'll pray. We're dealing with family issues. Most people have relatives that you're really concerned about them. And some of them like Esau, maybe they've chosen a wrong path for their life right now. And they need people really interceding for them, and it's serious because if nobody's praying for them, they're probably going to perish in their sin. But if people will earnestly pray for them, God will intervene. Do you remember in the days of Ezekiel, the Lord said, I looked for a watchman, but I couldn't find anybody to build up the hedge and pray. God needs intercessors. Now, what is an intercessor? It's somebody that's a stand-between. Think about Abraham. God told Abraham, he said, I'm going I'm to have to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And, the, and Abraham became an intercessor. He stood between God and Sodom. And he said, Lord, if you can, I'm speeding up the story. If you could just find 10 righteous, would you spare it? And the Lord said, because you've asked me, yes, I will. An intercessor. God will hear your intercessory prayers. And nobody will pray for your family like you because nobody cares about them like you do. And so I know there's a lot of people that follow us on these podcasts and this is getting out there to a lot of different people. Let me encourage you, those that follow our ministry, to get a piece of paper and begin to write down all your loved ones that you're concerned about. In River of Life, those that are part of our ministry, you already fast one day a week anyway. Almost pretty much everybody does. We have every day of the week covered by somebody. You're already fasting and praying. You're fasting and praying about the watchman sheet. You need to get out a piece of paper, and you need to write down all your loved ones that you're worried about. And you need to add them to your fast, and you need to begin to earnestly seek the Lord for them. Now, I'm going to tell you how to pray. I'm going to give you some type of prayers How many knows that there's some prayers that'll shake the gates of hell? There's some prayers that will cripple the devil. I'm going to give you some of those here in a minute. But James 5.16 says this in the Amplified. I love this. It says, the earnest, heartfelt, 
continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. Earnest, earnest means that with all your heart. And then continued means that you don't just do it once. You keep on until you see the answer. See, there's an earnest, continued prayer. You keep pressing in until it happens. And then James gives the example. He says, look, Elijah was a human, human being just like us, with feelings and affections and a constitution just like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and no rain fell for three and a half years. And then he prayed again. But how many remember the story of, of Elijah praying again. Remember, he kept praying and kept praying and kept sending guys or whatever and kept praying until what? Till the cloud the size of a man's hand appeared. Earnest, heartfelt, continued prayers until it happened. That's what James is saying here. Pray and don't give up. Keep praying. Keep fasting. He said, and then after Elijah prayed it through, it did rain and the ground produced its crops. So let me give you these prayers. As you make a list of your loved ones that you're concerned about, here's some prayers that I believe will be very powerful. And I encourage you to keep these prayers with your sheet that, of your loved ones because these prayers, I believe, are effective. Number one, pray and ask God that the Holy Spirit will brood over the life of those people and draw them to Christ. The Holy Spirit will just hover over their life and keep wooing and drawing them. Father, don't take your spirit away from them. Let your Holy Spirit just keep brooding over their life, keep convicting them, keep softening their heart, keep drawing them. And then number two, their hearts of stone to be turned to hearts of flesh. You remember in Ezekiel, the Bible said that those people had stony hearts. But God said, I'll, I'll take away that stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. Pray that God will give him a heart of flesh. Number three, and this is a, a big one, the numbness to the conviction of the Holy Spirit will disappear. When you start praying that, they may start getting miserable because that they've been able to be numb to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but you're asking God to take that away. They're not going to be numb anymore. They're going to be convicted. Number four, this dovetails from that one, a deep conviction of their sins. That God grant them deep repentance and an imputed righteousness in their hearts. And in other words, God will convict them and give them a heart after him. Okay. The next one is, this is a big one too, that the pleasures of sin will dry up. Again, this may make them a little miserable because things that used to satisfy them in their sin if you will it's going to stop satisfying them you know i remember in times of revival i've read this in multiple different accounts in hebrides and cane ridge seems like maybe ulster but different places where god moved and people were under the conviction of the holy spirit and they would go to like the bar and try to drink that off of them but they couldn't get rid of it <laughs> That's what you're praying for. Lord, let the pleasures of sin dry up. Let your Holy Spirit keep brooding over them and convicting them. Remove that numbness. Don't leave them alone. Let the Holy Spirit just keep moving on them until they're brought to repentance. And that famous story about that guy, um, I can't remember his name, Robert Henley or something, but his dad was a pastor at Cambridge before the revival, and he went there to mock the revival. Remember that? And he saw the Holy Spirit knock all those people down, and, and he was so gripped with conviction. He fled from there, went to the bar, tried to drink it off, couldn't drink it off, gets with his buddy. They're leaving town, and he ends up looking at his friend and say, you know what? If we don't repent, the devil's going to get the both of us. And they just busted out crying and end up getting saved. And you know that man became a great Methodist preacher a circuit rider that would ride across country and win people to Jesus. He became a great man of God, but the Holy Spirit would not leave him alone. That's what you want. Another one is, and this is a, a big one too, the crookedness in their thinking be removed. See, there's people out there, your loved ones, that because of things they've been taught, things they've been told, 
the wrong friends they've had in their life, a lot of crookedness has got in their thinking where they're okay with things that God hates or they don't like things that God is for and their minds are all got all this crookedness in it. Ask the Lord to remove that crookedness out of their thinking and give them a renewed mind. The next one I would say is this. Take strong authority over the devil. As a Christian, you have authority. You have a lot more authority than what you think you do. Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me. And he said, I've given you the keys. You have authority to bind and loose. And Luke says this, you have authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. What you need to do is you need to get that list out and you need to begin to pray over them. And then part of your prayer be this. Now in Jesus' name, I take authority and I bind the devil at work in their life. You will not have them. I command you to release them unto salvation. I break your power off their minds. I break your power off their hearts. I command you to release them in Jesus' name. You're not going to have them, Satan. I bind you. And there was a, a great man of God, a pastor, who had a son that was away from God for years. And every day when he would pray, part of his prayer time, he'd say, Satan, you can't have my son. I bind you in Jesus' name. You will release him. I command you to let him go. And eventually his son got saved and became a mighty man of God. But his father never gave up. He kept binding the devil, kept binding him up, saying, you will release him. Use your authority. And you can break the power of darkness off their eyes and their ears and all that. Also, the next one I would say is pray this, that God would sanctify them as a bride without spot or blemish and get them ready. So it's one thing to be born again. It's another thing to be deeply consecrated. Pray that God will really sanctify them deeply. He'll purge them from things that, that has really hindered them. The next one I would pray is this, that God send his angels to be around them to protect and deliver them because there is a war over their soul. It has shocked me sometimes the spiritual war that is over people. I mean, I've seen, I've done so much street evangelism, probably more than what a lot of you think. I've, I've talked to a lot of people. It never ceased to amaze me sometimes the manifestations of the demonic and the war that was going on around these people. I saw people just go, when you started talking about Jesus, just go berserk. I mean, I learned early on, you have to bind up the devil before you go and pray for divine appointments because there's a war. And the next thing I would pray is this, uh, pray that God give them divine appointments with somebody because you're praying for them, but you may not be the one that leads them to Christ. But you know what? God has somebody that will. It could be a television program or it could be somebody that God sends to them that's going to witness to them. You prayed for them and so now their heart is ready and at the right time, the right person will come in their path and they'll be broken and give their life to Christ. And they may live in another part of our nation or another part of the world and it's important that God send somebody to them that can reach them where they are and then maybe take them to a good church. You see what I'm saying? But pray for the divine appointment. You want the right person to lead him to Christ. The next one I would say is this, praying in tongues, so powerful. We don't know what to pray, but let the Holy Spirit come upon you. In Romans chapter eight, the Lord helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray, but the Holy Spirit will pray through us, even sometimes in groans too deep for words. But let the Holy Spirit pray through you in tongues, the perfect will of God. And then finally, and let me just say something about that. Kenneth Hagin one time said he was woke up in the middle of the night, had a deep burden for his brother and began to deeply intercede for him. I believe praying in the spirit, just kept praying, middle of the night, just groaning, praying for him, praying for him. Finally, he felt the burden lift off of him. Come to find out his brother almost died that, that night and it was serious. I think it was a car wreck or something, but his life was hanging in the balance. He should have died, but yet Kenneth Hagin was praying for him and God spared him. All right, and then the last thing I would say is adding fasting to your prayers. Like I said, most of you fast some anyway, but fasting makes tremendous power available in your prayers. There's so many promises to fasting. It, it's something that's really dear to my heart. 
But if you do a study and you look at 2 Chronicles 7.14, Isaiah 58, Joel chapter 2, fasting, if I could just say it quickly, seems to be this, that if you'll, add, if you'll humble yourself in prayer and fasting and really repent and pray, the Bible says, God said, I'll drive away your enemies and I'll release unto you the grain and new wine, the oil, the former and latter rains, and I'll pour out my spirit and I'll restore all those years the locusts have eaten. As a matter of fact, through you, Isaiah 58, you will be among those that rebuild the ancient ruins. Through you, I'll restore others. And then it says in Isaiah 58, you'll call unto me, I'll answer you. You'll cry to me and I'll say, here I am. Answer prayers in God's nearness. Prayer and fasting, he said, I'll make you like a well-watered garden whose springs don't fail and strengthen your frame. You know what that is? Revival. Living in perpetual revival and last. Your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing quickly appear. Your righteousness go before you. The glory of the Lord's your rear guard. You know what that is? God arising with healing in his wings in your midst. There's promises linked to fasting and prayer that you're not going to get any other way. But it's awesome. Derek Prince used to say, if people really understood the promises linked to fasting, he said, I promise you there'd be more people fasting because the promises are too great. People would read through that and say, my God, I've got to do this. Look at what the Bible says here. And think about 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If we humble ourselves and pray and seek, if, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways, what? He'll hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land. And so there's great promises associated with intercessors. So I just encourage you, just like I was reading about Jacob and Esau, Esau became very wayward. And many of you have wayward family. And you know if they were to die suddenly, you would really be troubled because you wouldn't know where they would spend eternity. Let me encourage you to get on the offense now, that you write their names down and you begin to go after God on their behalf and bind the enemy and begin to be an intercessor for them. And you watch, God will do it. So, Lord, we thank you tonight for your word. And here we are in the latter days. The coming of the Lord is near. Prophecies being fulfilled. So much is going on. And, Lord, it's just like this, uh, this bloodline like Esau and those that the seething hatred of God's people. See, that's going to fully manifest with the Antichrist and the Antichrist system in these last days. How many realize that? That's going to fully manifest. That Olam Iba, that ancient hatred is going to work its way through the world. It's going to be very anti-Christ and very anti-Semitic. And it's going to result in, in what the Bible talks about, the genocide against Christians and then ultimately Jews. But at the same time, God has a remnant and God has a plan. And he needs us to partner with him to see great revival and a harvest of souls. So, Lord, I thank you as we close out tonight for hearing and answering these prayers. I thank you for moving in power. I thank you, Lord, for saving our lost loved ones. I thank you for yielding the harvest and doing great ex exploits in these last days. I thank you, Lord, for pouring out your spirit. These are the last days, and you said you pour out your spirit on all flesh, and you'll get a bride ready to meet you in the air. In the end of the age is the harvest. Lord, give us souls. Lord, use us in a mighty way to see a harvest, see a great revival. We cry out for it tonight in Jesus' name. And let this word be sealed in our heart tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want us to go ahead, and um, tonight I really felt this. I feel that God is going to move with some deep, profound intercession and some of you that are intercessors I feel that God has we had been praying kind of in this sphere like this right here something has happened here recently where God has pulled up some tent pegs and he stretched them out and he's buried them back down and now it's like there's territory that needs to be taken in prayer and I really felt the Lord tell me that last Tuesday, tonight, and this coming Tuesday especially, that there was going to be some significant intercession made. And I really feel this. I feel like God wants to come in here. The presence of God has been strong, strong tonight. And God's wanting intercessors to begin to pray. And so I'm going to ask the Lord, I want my wife just to, <coughs> excuse me, to play something as far as music and I want us to find a place but listen I feel like God's really going to come upon you this is not just a, another little thing I feel like this is significant 
And God is going to really move upon you prayer warriors and give you a burden, even some of you that's not necessarily intercessors. And maybe you've never really felt this before. I encourage you to let God come upon you and pray in the spirit and you'll feel a burden. And then at some point you'll feel that burden lift. And then it'll shift to another burden and pray that through. And God's going to keep doing this. I feel there's going to be some significant ground taken. And I do believe for some of you, this might also have to do with your lost loved ones. But there's ground that God is taking in the spirit. And there's things that God has promised us in River of Life. There's provision that he has. There's a revival and a harvest. There's, there's a move that he has for us. But it, it's going to birth because of intercessors. And so I want us to pray. Can you go ahead and just play? <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I want us to begin to really pray tonight. <clears throat>